His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. It's a simple story. It's not got the same fanfare that we find in the Gospel of Luke, and it's not quite as theological as what we find in John, but hey, at least he mentions it because Mark completely ignores it altogether. Joseph did as commanded, and Jesus was born. That's it. That's the ultimate part of the birth narrative that Matthew records for us. Well, hey, everybody, I'm glad that you are here today. This is the second Sunday in Advent, and uh, I'm glad that you're all here, and those of you who are gathered online, glad you're with us as well. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David, and I am your guide for the next eh, 30 minutes or so, depending on how long winded I feel. I will be your Sherpa of Scripture, so we are glad that we are able to open the Word and find something for us. Let's see if we can unpack this part of the story a little bit more. So if you've got a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 1. invite you to turn there if you haven't already. Uh, I'm going to begin with verse 18. I'll have it on the screen for you in case you need it. But um, here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And we need to pause right here because we need to talk about this. I, and I've talked about this in the past, but I think it's important to remind ourselves a little bit of the Jewish nature of this. Because remember, Matthew's got an agenda here. He is writing very specifically to skeptical Jews. That's his audience. And so consequently, you're going to find a lot of Jewishness about this particular book. And so when he uses this term, uh, pledged to be married, there's a very specific thing that's going on here that we need to understand uh, as far as Jewish marriage customs go. So here we are on this little, um, I guess I'll call it graphic that I kind of created. Moving, you know, from your typical um, left to right, you would have two people who were unmarried. Now, a lot of these uh, marriages were arranged in in this day and age, but you had uh, a man and a woman, they were They were unmarried, and there was some type of negotiation between the families before they were, um, you know, pledged to be together. And when they uh, had settled all those um, various details of the contract out, um, there was some type of a ceremony, uh, a bit of a ritual that essentially bound this man and woman together. They weren't married, they were betrothed. Um, Now, I've done 
bit of reading on this, and I, I, you know, I don't know how important it is or not. It kind of depends on the, the time period that we're talking about. But very often, the way this worked out is that there would be this betrothal, and then the man had a, a particular period of time that he was supposed to go build a house so that he could bring his new bride too. And so that betrothal period could be rather long if he was a little on the lazy side, right? So who knows? Uh, I don't know, you know exactly how it all works out, but, but within Jewish custom, there was this ceremony and a betrothal period. Then there would be another uh, ceremony where they were actually married. They would live together and um, uh, begin to create a family. And so when we're talking about how Mary was pledged to be Joseph, we're in that yellow um, betrothal period. I, I should have dropped a, a, like a pin in there. You are here, right? So unmarried, betrothal, married, it seems rather simple, but um, there was a lot of legality here. They were essentially married under the eyes of the law, but they weren't necessarily living together, if this makes sense. So keep that in mind. It's a bigger deal than our engagement period is today. There were certain customs, there were certain expectations on the part, uh, on the part of the couple and a, a part of the community. And that level of gravity, gravitas, uh, was important to our particular story here. So um, we're in this betrothal period. So now, while we're in the betrothal period, Mary is found to be with child, right? That's what we read in the text. This pregnancy, at the very minimum, is scandalous. Very minimum. Because they're not living together and they're not married, right? So, without trying to be too graphic about it, either the couple was doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, or the woman was fooling around doing something she wasn't supposed to be doing with somebody else. Does this make sense? There's only two options here, neither of which are very good for her. Okay? Keep that in mind. And this is not only difficult because of the Jewish custom that's in play, this is a small town. We're talking like maybe 3,000 people. Now, how many of you have grown up in a small town? You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because everybody and everybody else's business. And that's kind of what's happening here. So you've got this rather scandalous um, event that takes place in a small town. So <clears throat> under Jewish law, we call the Torah, Joseph, the husband, had to do one of two things. He needed to either fess up or um, he needed to dissolve the betrothal, divorce. And that's what we find the word that's used later on in, in, this, in this story. And under Jewish law, under Torah, Joseph had the right to divorce her. And frankly, he had the right under law to hum humiliate her as well. He could have done that. Could have completely thrown her under the bus. But he didn't. And it even talks about how he was a righteous man. It wasn't that he was just following the law, but he was going to do it in a stand-up way. Okay? He was going to do it quietly. He wasn't going to humiliate her. He was just going to say, hey, you know, let's, let's just be done with this. And it demonstrates, I think, an extraordinary amount of holiness on his part. Because imagine, guys, how you would feel. If you were in that kind of custom and um, circumstances turned out that way, you would not only be um, surprised, you would have been humiliated yourself and probably even a little bit hurt. 
And yet Joseph does the right thing and just does it quietly. Decides to demonstrate a certain amount of of sanctification, a certain amount of self-discipline. And I, I think it's interesting that he kept it quiet, but he didn't really give a reason for it. At least we don't find it in the text. He just simply does it. Mm. Did he do it out of love, or did he do it out of you know, the you know, virtue of his character, or something else? I don't know. And the text is silent about it. Now, Mary's reputation is completely shot. Make no mistake. There is no set of circumstances where she's, she comes out okay in, in any of this. But at the same time, you have to understand, Joseph is in the same boat. Different, maybe different reasons. But it will always be, oh, Joseph, that poor man, pitied because his betrothed cheated on him. But at the same time, if he makes a different choice, if he um, decides to go through with the actual wedding ceremony and, and begin to live with her, then what is he? He is ultimately a fool. What would people think? So Mary is immoral at the very minimum, and Joseph is a fool at the very minimum, and no one, despite the fact that God is involved in this, comes out unaffected. And I think sometimes what happens to a lot of us, oh, I'm going to preach now, look out. Here's the thing. I think what happens to us is we feel like we get the call of of God in our life and everything is smooth. Trust me, that ain't so. It's still the call of God. There still is something there that's driving you, that's motivating you, that's, that's with you through all of these things, but that doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, it's probably going to be a little bit harder. Just FYI, if that hasn't happened to you yet, it's coming. Hang on. Now, that's not to scare you because it gives God more of an opportunity to actually work through you and in your life, and that's what he's ultimately after. But please don't think that, that because God's got a call in your life that it's going to be a simple thing. Well, it might be simple, but it may not be easy. Okay? Might be, but not always. And then God intervenes. <clears throat> But after he had considered this, this is Joseph, the idea of divorce. Horrible set of circumstances. God, that had to have been difficult. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now remember, back up in, what is it, verse 18 and 19, Matthew said that, that it was from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what Mary probably told, told him, I'm guessing, but now the angel says it to him. Just so that you're clear, Joseph, this isn't, this isn't what you think it is. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, we got a lot to talk about in there. There's, this one's rich. I, I like this one. So this angel appears in a dream. First thing he does, um, the angel says, Joseph, son of David. He uses the, the royal um, term because Joseph had that in his bloodline, and Matthew established this for us in the first part of, of, the, uh, of the gospel, the very first few paragraphs, because there's this genealogy. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, so this, or, or last week, uh, the genealogy. <clears throat> So he says, Joseph, son of David. This is going to become more interesting later on. Um, Secondly, he talks about what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And of course, this echoes verse 18, as we just said. 
But then he says, give him the name Jesus, and notice this, because he will save his people from their sins. Now here's what's interesting, and I think this is one of those things that can kind of get lost in translation. Jesus is in Hebrew, Yeshua, and Yeshua is Joshua, and Joshua at its root has the, the, the idea or the word salvation in it, okay? So think about this. You've got Joshua, remember there's a book named Joshua, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Remember? You Veggie Tail fans, right? Yeah, okay. So Josh and the Big Wall. So Josh is Yeshua. Jesus is um, a, uh, a different version of Yeshua. And at the core is this idea of salvation. And so you're to give him the name salvation because he will save his people from their sins. Is this making sense? So his name actually means something, which is really fascinating because that is a big deal within Israelite culture, within ancient Israel. So Joseph, who is being um, asked here to basically play the fuel, uh, fool in his community, needed a sign. He needed a sign. And so he has this dream. And remember something. I want you to remember this. The bigger the sign, the bigger the task. This is why the vast majority of us do not get burning bushes, even though we want them. The bigger the sign, the bigger the task. This is why the angel of the Lord actually appeared to Mary and said, Hail, O favored one. You cannot tell me that she did not bring that back to her own mind time after time after time as she went through pregnancy, a long trip to Bethlehem, and a delivery in a stable. God gives us those signs, those big signs for those big tasks because we need them. Now Matthew adds a bit of a footnote here that I find really interesting. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and uh, give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. This is where this prophecy is, is coming to pass. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. It reminds the Jewish reader of this particular prophecy. This story about Mary and Joseph, this is what Matthew's communicating, this story that we're reading about Mary and Joseph, this really is about that prophecy. You need to connect these two things in your mind because there's something else that's going on here within the story. And if you're a Jew and you remember your days in Jewish school and you're learning about these things and what the prophet said, that prophecy is pointing to this. Make the connection. And Matthew does it and, I don't know, I think he does a pretty good job of it. Helps us to see that. But interestingly enough, call him Jesus, but they will call him Emmanuel. Do you see that? We've got two separate names that are going on here. And I, I find this fascinating because in Jewish culture, in Jewish literature, names mean something. 
Now, if you'll remember, there was a couple of times that uh, God changed the names of people. Abram became Abraham. His wife, Sari, becomes Sarah, right? And those names actually mean things in, in the Hebrew language. Jacob becomes who? Israel. And of course, he has a bunch of sons, and they become the tribes of Israel and become the nation that God had promised to Abraham. In the New Testament, Saul becomes Paul. So there's this thing about the change in names, but what names actually mean. And so here Matthew is pointing this out. He's stirring inside of his Jewish reader this Jewishness, this idea that names change and they mean something. And so we've got two separate things going on here. Jesus, because Savior, because he will save people from their sins, and Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't this interesting? Because now we've got two names for Jesus. And so here it is, is that God with us means salvation. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God with us means salvation. Now, when we're talking about salvation here, we need to be real careful because in the American church, it's really easy to relegate all of this to um, going to heaven. It means that, yes, but that's not all it means. Salvation is a very robust idea. It has to do with things like mental health, physical health, relational health, all of those pieces of it. When Jesus enters into the mix, God is with us and therefore there is salvation present. So there's a reason why there are two names that are mentioned. You will give him the name Jesus and yet they will call him Emmanuel. It's both and, not either or. And aren't you glad? Someday I'm going to develop that one more because that just seems like, you know, that's a really good point, David. I think we should write that one down. So if you've got your journal, you might want to write that one down. That's a good one. It's all bound together in these two names. <clears throat> and now Joseph responds. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. Oh, surprise, surprise, there's the son. And he gave him the name Jesus right? <clears throat> so he did what he was supposed to do. He married his betrothed, he kept her safe, and then he gave his son the name that he was asked to. This one called salvation. It's a really short but a very beautiful story about how God can change people's minds, right? And I, I want you to remember that Matthew, again, is writing to a very specific culture. He's writing to not only Jewish people who have this long tradition and their own ideas about the Messiah, he's, he's actually writing to skeptical Jews. Yeah, we're not so sure about this whole Jesus character. But he ties the story back to Jewish history to try to help them connect those dots. And I think that's the, the importance of this particular narrative, at least in my mind it is. And with a, a child who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I 
There we go. This is going to be really hard because I speak with my hands. So you can imagine what this is going to be like. Okay. Where was I? Oh, yes, yeah, so we're talking about Matthew uh, 1, 16. Um, <clears throat> so, so again, um, Matthew's trying to connect us back to Jewish history. And so we've got this story of a female with a, question, a questionable story about a female, like a bunch of others within, within the genealogy of Jesus. But also notice that Joseph had a what? What did he have? The angel appeared in a dream. Who else had a dream? Had dreams? Another guy named Joseph. Huh. Things that make you go, hmm, right? So Joseph had dreams, and then just Joseph had, has dreams. And of course, it might also bring to mind Joel chapter 2, verse 28, which talks about the... Um, uh, God pouring his spirit out on all flesh where young men would see visions and old men would dream dreams, right? So there's all kinds of these little clues that Matthew is leaving to us, leading us to and, and trying to connect these Old Testament ideas with this New Testament story that's a, a, um, occurring. And so really it's about making a case for this Jewish Messiah. Now there's one more thing here, one more thing before we leave this. The angel calls Joseph son of David. Did you notice that? I mentioned this earlier. I pointed it out because that's how he addressed Joseph. And this is interesting for Jewish reasons, but, but there's this part of me that I, I really I wonder something. It, it's, I'm not saying it's troubling me, but I, but I find it just kind of fascinating. When the angel tied him to the royal bloodline, how do you think that made Joseph feel? I mean, think about this from a human perspective, right? I mean, we read the story every single uh, Christmas time, and we try to understand. But here is a person <laughs> living in a rather <clears throat> backwoods kind of place. And from what we know in other parts of the text, that he's a carpenter, so he's, you know, kind of a tradesman. But the angel doesn't call him that. The angel says, Joseph, son of David. There's a royalty here. I wonder how that made him feel. While Matthew uses it to help other people understand his connection to the story, the angel reminded Joseph of who he was. He's not the local carpenter from a backwater town in a forgotten part of the Roman Empire. No, he was royalty. Let that sink in for a moment. God saw him for what, God saw him for who he really was, not who everyone else believed him to be. God saw him for who he really was, and not what the local community thought of him. Now, here's the good news, because there's good news here. God sees you for who you really are, not for what the people around you believe you to be. So the same is true for you as it was for Joseph. And because of Jesus, we can claim what the apostle Paul wrote to a, another church. 
For he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ. God's pretty consistent here, I think. God is highlighting the fact that Joseph is part of the royal bloodline, but at the same time, because of the baby that's being announced and because of his death and resurrection, ultimately you and I can make the same claim. Adoption is sons and daughters of the living God. You are not what you do from Tulsa, Oklahoma, or wherever you're from. You are adopted as a daughter and a son of the creator and sustainer of the universe. And you are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment on your inheritance. That sounds like good news to me. And I think sometimes when we're going through the Christmas holiday, (laughs) there's a lot to do, right? I was lamenting this to my wife the other day uh, a little bit. Um, Last year, um, because of the lockdowns and whatnot, we didn't have nearly the number of events that we, that we normally have, especially if you have kids. Everybody's got a program or a party. Did you notice this? Now, the upshot to this is that there's usually additional cookies and treats in my house because you can't have a Christmas anything without food. It's just not right. Pretty sure it's not scriptural, but I haven't found it yet. But I will. I'll find it. Anyway, The bottom line here is that we're busy. And and the one thing that I really enjoyed about last year was the fact that we weren't quite as busy. Now, I don't like the reasons why we weren't busy, but I like the fact that we weren't running around quite as much as, as we were. But here's the thing. The point to all of this is that whether you're busy or not, the same truth is in play. That this baby has created an opportunity for us to realize that we are more than what we seem to be. And that there's a royal connection for all of us, sons and daughters of the king. Now, maybe we ought to go live like that. Just a thought. Today, we're going to do um, something that we do at Uh, Every one of our family Sundays, we're going to take communion. It's this ancient ritual that Jesus gave us. And you have uh, a little cup. Um, At Thrive Church, we have what's called an open table. It means that if you're a follower of Jesus, oh, please, please, please join us in this. We want you to be a part of this with us. Uh, If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you don't have to take it. That's fine. Nobody's going to look at you funny. Uh, In fact, there's some evidence to suggest it might be detrimental for you to take it if you're not a follower of Jesus, and I don't want that for you. But it's here. It binds us not only to each other, but binds us to a long tradition of saints um, who have done the same ritual. And this time, um, the thing that I want you to think about because I think you ought to take communion intentionally, right? It's not just something that we gulp down or whatever, but rather we do it with a certain amount of intention. 
and, and as, you, as you take it today, I, I, I don't know how you're going to do it. You, you get to decide. That's the beautiful part of this. But I want you to remember that because of what Jesus did, we're remembering his death and his res- resurrection. Because of that, you are a child of the king. You are who you are. And maybe as you're taking it, you ought to say that. I am a child of the king as you, as you eat and as you drink. Now, the worship team's going to come up. They're going to they're play and, and sing. Communion is for you to take when you're ready. When you're prepared to say, I am a child of the king, and you, then you take it, okay? But that's for you. This is a, a moment that I'm just going to suggest to you is don't let this pass by unintentionally. And we were praying um, and singing about a fresh wind, a fresh fire, something. We want God to pour his spirit out. But I think the thing that stops most of us is that for whatever reason, we, uh, we don't think we're worthy of it. Oh, my friends, you are because that baby came. You're worthy of it. And I want you to take and eat and drink because of that. And on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples, and he took the bread that was common on the table. He broke it and passed it out to them after he had given thanks and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Every time you eat this, I want you to remember me. You know they didn't understand and then after the supper, he took the cup, again, common element on the table, gave thanks, passed it to his disciples, said, take and drink. This is my blood poured out for you. Every time you drink this, I want you to remember me. And they didn't understand. But you do. And you understand the implications of that. The royalty that's involved. The seal of the king upon your life. And there are implications for you because of it. God, I'm so grateful that you do these wonderful things for us. That you remind us of who we are, not who others say we are. You know the truth. And you're so willing to share it with us. And God, for those who might be uh, seated here and thinking that somehow they're not worthy of all of this. In the name of Jesus, I break that, that chain of shame. It's a lie. The truth is they are worthy because you made them worthy. Let us not walk out of this place without at least a little spark of that truth in our hearts. And so, Lord, as we sing, as we pray, as we think about you and what you did for us, come visit, Lord. You're welcome here. You always are. And we're going to thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.